You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There's been a lot of concern about the $3 trillion, uh, $1 trillion junk bond market in the U.S. Uh, for a number of years. This year, however, it has been outperforming. Our next guest joins us to talk about that, John McLean, Portfolio Manager at Diamond Hill. Uh, John, I want to start with that because there's been a lot of concern about riskier assets this year, certainly volatility picking up. And yet the high yield market has been uh, significantly outperforming higher rated debt. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's uh, the credit spread that you have in in high yield is uh, still reasonably attractive uh, for the default rate expectations going forward. Uh, so you have, um, you know, with this case, you also have less interest rate sensitivity um, with with high yield. And so I think if people are uh, worried about the markets, uh, I'd first be a little bit more worried about equities as, as opposed to high yield. When you talk about high yield, should we get specific and talk about some of the energy uh, areas like uh, oil, natural gas? I mean, because weren't they really the big focus of, uh, of high yield lending? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was definitely the story in 2015 and 2016. Um, I think the market has sharpened its pencil and uh, understands where good assets are and, and where weaker assets are. And uh, from our viewpoint, uh, you want to be concentrated in the Permian Basin. And, uh, you know, at this point, uh, companies have right-sized their balance sheets. Uh, you know, I think we've seen all the distress kind of move through. And uh, with the commodity environment where it is, particularly on oil, uh, you know, around 60 bucks, uh, that's pretty constructive for, for a lot of the high-yield issuers right now. All right. I want to talk a little bit about some of the sinkholes that we're seeing. For example, community health. Uh, yesterday, it was rumored that it is uh, going to hire some advisors to restructure its debt and its bonds sunk. This sort of uh, feeds on an ongoing slump in healthcare related junk bonds. Is this an area where you see opportunity or uh, that you want to avoid like a plague? Uh, yeah, I'd probably say the latter. Uh, Avoid like are, a plague. We are certainly underweight healthcare in general, and uh, community specifically uh, has a very tough path uh, on a go forward basis. We don't really like the assets, and we think that it has an untenable debt load. 
So uh, I do believe a restructuring could occur uh, and could occur uh, seemingly faster than the market has anticipated. Uh, another name that caught my eye, Valiant. This is a company with $27 billion of debt. It just sold more bonds and there were plenty of buyers, evidently. Were you among them? And do you th- view this as a sign that the pendulum has swung back to issuers in the high yield bond market? Well, uh, we were not. And the coupon that they had to pay at nine and a quarter was pretty expensive relative to the market, uh, yielding a little north of six percent. So, uh, you know, they're in a position right now again with a with a very weak hand. Uh, they have to continue to kick the can down the road, and their interest costs continue to move higher. I don't think that deal is traded uh, particularly well. Um, so, you know, I, I think that one is is certainly a wait and see story. Tell me about Sprint, and uh, they're uh, going back to the market for more money, and they're using Spectrum as collateral. You're kind of laughing a little bit here. Why? Uh, we kind of put that in the too hard pile. It's it's very hard to you know set a set a true valuation around what that Spectrum's worth. So uh, if we can't analyze and understand it, we're not going to commit capital to it. What about uh, the ETF involvement in the high yield bond market? There has been a sort of bifurcation between bonds that are included in the high yield bond ETFs and those that have not. How much do you sort of play that space and try to focus on bonds that are either in the ETFs or out of them? Yeah, I mean, the ETFs are our favorite trading counterparty, Lisa. Um, What does that mean? You have a technical buyer or seller, and they're typically uh, buyers into strength and sellers into weakness. Um, so for us, that is certainly an opportunity that we can exploit How? in the market um, by providing them the liquidity that they provide to their customers. So I think the ETFs and high yield are kind of a victim of their own success. Uh, they've been sold as liquidity, not as alpha. And uh, you know, I would say that uh, if you look at their performance over any reasonable period of time, they're bottom quartile performers. And, uh, you know, with equity markets, you have cheap uh, beta. And if you look at the expense uh, ratios on the, on these relative to true active management, uh, you're not really getting a, a big break there. Tell me about private equity companies and their role in buying up high yield debt. What have you seen right now? Uh, there continues to be a swath of capital in, in private equity. So, uh, you know, I would continue to think that we will see more uh, on the LBO front. Um, it's just how much leverage you can put on companies. So I'm wondering, you said initially you expect the default rate uh, to remain low. John, what are you looking at in particular to signal that the tide is turning? Because this is sort of the key question that everybody turns to when they talk about strength and riskier assets. I mean, we're looking at underlying economic data, and uh, growth seems to be here. Uh, Unemployment rates continue to be very low. Uh, You know, it is a uh, strong labor force right now. So, uh, you know, again, we we remain pretty constructive on on the fundamentals of the U.S. economy. And with high yields, roughly 80% of uh, revenues are generated domestically. Netflix. Interested in buying Netflix debt? They certainly got a lot of it. At a certain price, absolutely. Yeah. A price. What price? Uh, you know, I would say with Netflix, um, you know, we would look to where they were issuing debt uh, several years ago. Um, you know, if you could get a high fives, six uh, percent kind of coupon uh, on a name, I think that would be very attractive. Now, will we see that? Uh, I don't believe so. Um, but you look at the the content library itself covers the debt there, so it, it's a company you can believe in the equity market capitalization. 
that's John, a that's a huge margin of safety for us. Which companies uh, in the sort of triple B sphere, the lowest rated investment grade tier, are you watching for a potential downgrade? Uh, yeah, that that's a difficult one right now. Uh, it's not a particular area of the market that that we're really focused on. Um, you know, I think we'll we'll continue to see, uh, you know, some fallen angels like a Teva. Um, you know, where you have large scale M and A that doesn't work out, um, but there's nobody particularly on my radar right now. Toys R Us. Tell me about any. Uh, were you involved with any of that? No. no. Uh, that was a, a train wreck we saw coming a, a, a mile away. Really? <laughs> what, what What gave you that? I mean, a lot of people obviously didn't see that train. They thought it was light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, when's the last time you've been to a Toys R Us? It was basically <laughs> like it was base. It's something as basic as that. You run it. You talk amongst yourselves at the at the firm and say, "We don't even do this ourselves." Yeah, that's certainly a part of it. And uh, you know, they are uh, they were saddled with too much debt, and uh, you know, their competitors uh, were taking market share for a long period of time. So it was something that. Uh, you know, we felt like we could see well in advance. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Uh, John McLean is Portfolio Manager for Diamond Hill Investment Group, helping to manage uh, more than $22 billion uh, based in uh, Columbus, Ohio, although uh, Mr. McLean hails from the great state of Kentucky. Factory work and the industrialization of the world. It has attracted political pundits, but it also has now attracted a analysis by Joshua Freeman. He is a distinguished professor of history at Queens College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, of CUNY. And his book is entitled Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. And he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Professor Freeman, thank you very much for being here. First, tell us, why did you decide to write this book? Well, you know, I was. I, what caught my attention was in 2010 when there was a sudden burst of attention to Foxconn uh, because there were some suicides of its workers jumping off the roofs, and this this got you know attention. And what caught my eye? Make, maker of iPhone products. Maker of iPhone, you know, and biggest, and not just iPhone, but Samsung and many many different things. And what caught my eye was the size of the factory. It had 250,000 workers. And as a historian, this was mind-blowing, this company I'd barely ever heard of. And I started thinking, you know, are there precedents for this kind of outsized uh, establishment? And, you know, I thought, well, yeah, there kind of are. And that in each era, for 300 years now, there have been kind of cutting-edge establishments that have been the templates for the future and uh, have captured uh, public attention, you know, because they become carriers for debates about, you know, what our future should look like, you know, what system should we have. So that's what got me into this book. I thought, let me do some case studies that start with the earliest English factories and end with Foxconn. One of the, the brilliant things about the way you framed this was looking at factories as disruptors not sort of uh, moments of nostalgia that people want to get back to. Can you give us a sense of kind of how you did that, what, what, what you were thinking? Well, you know, I think in, in the States right now, we, we, we look at decline and abandonment so much. But, you know, I want to tell the story when these things were 
were, were sources of wonderment, when these were new things under the sun, that they represented these great breakthroughs in human ingenuity and capacity, and also, frankly, human misery at the same time. You know, they're all linked together. Um, and what I found over and over again was that observers saw them this way almost immediately, whether it was in, in 18th century England or the people that flooded in to tour the Ford factory uh, in the 19-teens and 1920s, um, or the photographers who celebrated Soviet factories, that there was a great sense that this was some uh, vision of what the new society was going to be like. Maybe describe for listeners what it would be like if you were to enter a factory that, uh, let's say, operated in the United States, a textile mill, for example, uh, around the turn of the previous century. Well, uh, you know, uh, if you were going into a textile mill in the early days of, of textile manufacturing, uh, probably you were coming from the countryside or, or rural life. And first of all, you've probably rarely ever seen so many people in one place or such a large building. You know, even just going in a five-story building was a new thing. Then it was loud. You know, there's all this machinery, weaving machinery, you know, has, has uh, you know, throws back and forth the shuttle 60 times a second. You couldn't hear anything. It stunk. Because, you know, they were, this before oil. They were using whale oil and animal grease. Um, and there were all these workers. And yet it was all being coordinated. It was all in one rhythm. The whole thing, the people and the machinery, was, was one enterprise. Um, in the best of the factories, you might see pr pretty nice-looking young women, mostly, you know, who uh, came from New England farms. Uh, in the worst of the factories, you'd see child labor uh, looking pretty darn miserable and starved. So, Josh, let's connect this to now, because we hear a lot about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., keeping uh, some of these assembly line and production jobs in America. And I'm wondering what moment in time are politicians talking about this, looking at what which which era of manufacturing do they want to bring back? And what's that tell us about our moment right now? Uh, in, in humanity. Well, I think the nostalgia, if you want to call that, uh, the, 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 the make America great again. I think people are thinking really about the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and this was an era when you had the height of American manufacturing industry and unionization which meant that the, the tremendous uh, productivity led to profits that were widely shared. So it sustained a way of life, of upward mobility for people who came out of high school, got a job in the local plant, did better than their parents, and knew their kids were going to do better than them. And I think that's the moment people look back to. You know, uh, I'm not so sure bringing a Foxconn plant as they operate in modern China, is going to sustain that way of life. You know, Wisconsin just uh, said it would spend $3 billion to do that. It'll be interesting to see what actually happens. You uh, were uh, not only uh, analyzing historical precedent, but as Lisa brought up, uh, current uh, factories. Mm -hmm. Factories in China, just give us a sense of the scale uh, the, and and there again, if we can draw, draw us a picture. They're mind-boggling. They're absolutely mind-boggling. You know, Foxconn City, which was their big Shenzhen center, which is still operating, although there are many other plants, uh, it takes an hour to walk across the complex. Um, there are, you know, something like two hundred to 300,000 people there. Uh, 70 or 80,000 of them live in dormitories. These are young Chinese people, mostly come in from the rural areas. 
Um, there's the factories themselves, which combine both very sophisticated production techniques and just very old-fashioned assembly with people uh, doing very fine uh, putting together of small things to go into your phone or the motherboard of your laptop. Uh, but it's surrounded by whole world. You know, there's everything from soccer fields to uh, cyber cafes to wedding dress shops, you know. Uh, I think for a lot of young Chinese people this who, who are leaving behind, you know, less developed rural areas, this is an interlude that, that, that's difficult. The work itself is tough and, and boring, but also it kind of is a, a glimpse into a more urban cosmopolitan world before they go back to where they came from, which is what happens with most of these workers. What about pay? Well, it depends on what you measure it by. By uh, U.S. standards, of course, it's very low, but pay in southern China has gone up. There's been actually a big wave of strikes, which doesn't get much publicity in this country, uh, that's pushed up wages. And in fact, uh, some companies, like there's a company that makes uh, shoes for uh, Ivanka Trump's line, uh, have begun building factories in Africa because uh, pay rates in southern China are now going up pretty quickly. So... Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's a very fluid situation. And the cycle that we saw in the United States and elsewhere of, you know, you build a new factory, it's innovative, but, but at some point it gets eclipsed by, by the newer version of it and labor costs and other costs go up and, and then it closes. That cycle seems to be happening ever faster. It's, it's just a fascinating issue. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really, truly a pleasure. Josh Freeman, distinguished professor of history and author of Behemoth, uh, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. He is at Queens College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, and it raises this question of, you know, can you ever focus on just recreating that one moment where it all works together and wages are rising and the jobs are still innovative uh, going forward? You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. United Kingdom's Prime Minister Theresa May expelling 23 Russian diplomats uh, to talk about this and uh, other possible points of contention between the European Union, the UK, the United States and Russia. We want to bring in Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg View National Security Editor. Toby, how much of a big deal is this? Um, it's both a big deal and not a big deal. Um, it 
it's going to depend on exactly who the diplomats are. I think Theresa May is in front of Parliament right now. Uh, it may or may not come up. She's going to give a statement later in the day, sort of with more details. I mean, this is this is all part of the game that they play. Um, we suspended, you know, under the Obama administration, we suspended Russian diplomats and we took over their uh, their lovely uh, shore house in Maryland. Um, and I don't think anyone truly. It, it's more of a statement than it is actually messing up their their uh, their embassy. Okay, so there was this nerve agent attack of a, a former Russian citizen. Uh, he was killed in the UK. Interest? Yes, you're shaking no, your head. He's still uh, hanging on. What? They're hanging on, aren't oh, they? Oh, they're both hanging on. Uh huh. Okay, great. Unless uh, he died overnight, but okay. Um. Okay. Uh, how important is it that President Trump responds to this in support of the United Kingdom? Um. It's only important because it's President Trump. Um. Because of you know his statements during the campaign that led a lot of people to think he was going to be squishy on Russia. Um. He actually hasn't been. Um. They've been pretty tough on on Putin. Um. Since they have uh, since they've taken office they upped sanctions they've uh, their rhetoric has been pretty good um but yeah it would be nice to see him just add moral support toby is uh, this more about the optics and the headlines because i can't imagine as horrible as it is that this is a security threat to let's say either the united kingdom or to the united states and i'm wondering whether this is in a sense a diversion of attention away from issues having to do with challenging air power in the Baltic, sale of military hardware to Turkey, and perhaps even undermining NATO? Uh, that's always a possibility. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna be the skunk at the garden party for a moment No, no, here. go for it. We don't actually have proof that Russia is behind this. Um, we strongly suspect for good reason that they were. So I don't want to get into their motivations behind it. Um, I don't think that anyone would would think this is gonna gonna keep the attention off of their other nefarious doings for very long. In fact, I think it'll only add to the image of of uh, of the Russians as as you know being a huge problem. Okay, so let's say okay, it hasn't been proven. Uh, both individuals who are attacked with a nerve agent are are still hanging on, although they are critically ill. Uh, at the same time, Rex Tillerson came out in strong support, the now former uh, Secretary of State for the U.S., came out in strong support of Theresa May and the United Kingdom in their efforts to go after this. Whereas yesterday we heard President Trump waffle on the issue, say, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, whether it's Russia or whoever else. I mean, this seems symbolically important. Are we reading too much into that? Um, I think in the U.S. we maybe are. I mean, this for the Brits to react like this is very much called for. I mean, this is an attack on their on their sovereign territory. Um, it's also, you know, if the Russians were behind it, remember that um, he was part of a prisoner swap. So this is breaking all the rules of the Cold War. Um, once you're part of a prisoner swap, you're supposed to be clear. I mean, we're not going to go after the people that he was traded for and try and kill them. Um, it's, it's Therefore, it's different than the previous poisoning case um, where the person was a defect not a, a defector anymore but had fled the soviet union and was living you know in quasi hiding um it's no better to attack people with with nerve agents um no matter their status um but this is it's really strange 
Toby, let's just shift to the U.S. and our own defense uh, budget right now. What's the most uh, important issue that should be before people's uh, attention when it comes to spending over seven hundred and what sixty billion a year? Uh, I, I hate to say it, but it's actually um, pension and health care reform for uh, for veterans. I don't think we can do much about that for um, the current retirees. I mean, we made a promise to them. They put their lives on the line. Um, but I think we have to be much, much tougher on um, the people in the service and particularly new recruits. And would uh, this affect things like the Veterans Administration? That's, it, was, that's where I was going to go with Yeah, that. it would, that's a separate budget technically. Right. Um, but I think there are a lot of savings to be done there. Um, the, the, the disability um, program in, in the VA is an absolute disaster. In fact, when they had the huge scandal about the waiting times a few years ago, um, almost all of those people were not waiting to be admitted to a hospital. They were um, looking to have their disability claims reviewed and get larger monthly checks. So it, it wasn't it wasn't as horrible as it seemed. It was bad that there was this huge backlog. But the real problem is um, these people get, you know, they're great. They were in the military. They're, they're strong, capable people. And they get sort of sucked into this, this, this disability trap um, where there's not a good system to get them back in the workforce. And right. it's sort of a subsistence living. Toby Harshaw, thank you so much for being with us. As always, we love having you on. Toby Harshaw, Bloomberg View National Security Editor, talking about the move that Theresa May announced today, expelling 23 Russian diplomats. Where are we in the real estate market cycle? Here to answer that question so that you can rest easy is Scott Lawler, founder and chief executive officer of Waypoint Residential, based in Connecticut, but here in our 1130 studios today in New York. Uh, Scott, I want to start with that question. But before we get into the answer, has the market in the U.S. ever been more bifurcated between cities that have seen an explosion of growth and price increases and the sort of smaller and mid-tier communities that kind of had been left behind until recently? Um, well, it's hard to say whether it's ever been more bifurcated, but it certainly is now, right? And so what we're experiencing is um, there's a tremendous influx of capital uh, into major coastal markets, institutional capital, foreign capital, and so on. And one of the reasons we try and um, play in a little bit different playing field is, is, is because of that. So it's the case that capital has now flowed further out, and we used to be a little bit ahead of the pack, or so we hoped and felt um, playing in secondary and tertiary markets, even as recently as three, four years ago. When you talk secondary tertiary, we're talking perhaps... Baltimore, uh, Pittsburgh. Near, is that what you're New York about? is view of the world is different. <laughs> but you know, markets as small Louis. as half a million, million people, and so on. Um, there was a point in time when we felt we were, you know, we didn't have as many friends pursuing deals in those markets. And what's gone on is because of what we talked about a minute ago and the tremendous influx of capital into the major coastal markets, driving down yields, um, capital is spread out in search of yield. So the markets are absolutely bifurcated, but we're seeing a dynamic where the, the smaller markets are becoming more competitive as well. 
Tell us about the time, I think it was recently, that you broke ground on a new development in Georgia. Uh, this is a senior living facility, and it combines a couple of different things. It's what they call memory care community. And maybe just use that as, as an example of the kinds of new things that you're doing and the demand that you see demographically for this kind of real estate. Yeah, so senior housing, uh, it's a sector we're very excited about. Um, we got into it about a year ago. That was our first investment. And it's it's a good 30 to 40 minutes outside Atlanta. Okay. A um, little bit more than 100 units, Noonan, Georgia. That's right. And relative to what I was talking about a minute ago, you know, Atlanta, depending how you look at it, some would consider a major market, tremendous capital inflow and so on. So we have to be thoughtful about where we play from a geographic perspective as it relates to the product type. So this is a mix of independent living, assisted living, and memory care, which is typically how we like to do it. Um, and and so it's ground up development. And, and the idea here is really, um, like everyone, or I shouldn't say like everyone, but seniors become much more competitive in a response to sort of, you know, the demographic tidal wave that's coming. And we understand that, unfortunately, many of our friends do too. And so the space has become more competitive. And so we bring to bear the same philosophy and trying to be thoughtful about how we play geographically so we get the benefit of that demographic tidal wave, but not necessarily compete with all our best friends when we're pursuing opportunities. And this was a joint venture with Watercrest Senior Living, right? That's correct. Okay. Use that as an example to sort of explain how you survived the 2008 downturn to then be able to do something like this, because you were at Broadway Partners, and boy, you probably have the scars to prove it. <laughs> yes, I was, um, and I do. And so, um, look, what we're doing now is a very different uh, business plan um, for a couple of reasons. Um, we're big believers in the apartment sector. There are all sorts of things driving the sector, and I'm sure you've had other folks talk about it and all that kind of stuff. And this sector has performed very well in, in this um, cycle and importantly performed on a comparative basis during that crash, okay, um, better than other commercial property types. It's basically a less volatile, lower beta sector. So whereas office buildings, um, shopping centers, hotels experience certain fluctuations in rents and values and so on in the market, uh, blows up apartments experience a cycle, but at a, to a much lesser degree. Coming out of what you referred to, that, that sounded pretty cool to me. So um, part of what we're doing is to take advantage of tremendous macro drivers that are behind the apartment sector. And part of it is, you know, as, as you point out, um, we're coming out of that cycle the way we did. Something with a little bit less volatility felt pretty good. So what we did is, you know, we went through the cycle of Broadway. We had a lot of difficulty um, kind of experienced a little bit of everything and contending with lenders and investors and so on. But we came out of it, I think, a lot better than a lot of people thought we were going to. And when it was time to start investing again, we said, you know, it's been a few years since we've done a deal. Let's take a look around, decide what we think makes the most sense. I had assumed all along I would just get back in the office business. But when we looked around, we decided there was a lot to like about the apartment business. And we started by dipping our toe in the water. We did a couple of deals with some partners to check it out, decided we were big fans and decided to kind of go full speed. Real quick, given the scars that you have, what are you looking for to indicate that another downturn in the housing market yeah. is, uh, is coming? Well, uh, let me respond to the question a little differently as far as another downturn coming. Here's how we structure our business, okay? And that's what I spend the most time thinking about. It's not trying to forecast when the downturn is coming, but making sure we're positioned to contend with it. So we do extreme downside sensitivity analysis, okay? We look at the numbers. Basically, we look at every acquisition as if 2008 was happening the next day. And more than that, we 
we show those numbers to our investors. And I get asked that question all the time. I call it the inning question. Scott, what inning are we in? In fact, I think you opened the segment that way. And my answer is always, I don't know. But let me tell you what's going to happen when. And I say, if this acquisition experiences 2008, 2009, here's the arithmetic. And the way you get there is with very conservative use of leverage and playing in a relatively low beta sector like I described. And when you bring those two things together, you're able to very confidently say, there's going to be a cycle. Right, I don't here's know, the information. Right. I don't know when, why, and how bad, but I know we're okay when it happens. And being a good steward of capital, I think, is much more about being able to answer the question that way than saying we're in the seventh or eighth or ninth or whatever the case may be. Much appreciated. Come back. Spend more time with us. Scott Lawler is the founder and the chief executive of Waypoint Residential, giving us his views on the real estate industry. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.